Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello again, and welcome to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty, and I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. Last episode, we talked about the concept of money printing, and we established that the Fed is not actually printing, but borrowing. Who are they borrowing from, you ask? Well, pull out your wallet and look at the green piece of paper that you see there. It says Federal Reserve Note. Congratulations, it's you. Anyone who holds dollars effectively is a creditor to the Fed. So Keith, you've written a lot about this. You call the Fed notes counterfeit credit. Why is it counterfeit? That's a good question, and um, it's one of those things people don't think about that much. I would say there are four criteria for what makes legitimate credit, proper credit. Two of them have to do with the lender and two of them have to do with the borrower. On the lender side, number one, it should go without saying, but um, it isn't being said anymore. The lender should be aware that he is lending. I should realize there's a credit operation. And to your point about, you know, if you don't know who the borrower is, it's you. People aren't even really aware. They think it's a dollar is money. And when you hold a money balance, you're not actually a lender versus holding a bond. But if you think of the Federal Reserve note as kind of a bond of zero day maturity and zero interest, then you realize, yeah, you're actually lending. You're lending to the Fed so that they can on lend to the government and to the major banks. So number one is the lender knows that he's lending. Number two, the lender agrees, lender approves of it. We don't know whether the lenders approve or don't approve. The right to approve or disapprove was taken away from them in 1933. So if you don't approve of lending, you want to withdraw your money, there is no withdrawal, there is no money in the monetary system today. The Federal Reserve note is irredeemable. That means you're a creditor and you will like it. It's like um, in the Soviet Union, you know, infamously, you know, they had elections there. People are sometimes surprised to hear that. I mean, you went to, to vote and there was, there was one name that you could vote for. You, you could vote for Stalin. And uh, so, so Stalin had, you know, was reelected with over 99 point, whatever, 9%, uh, you know, popular majority. Now, was he really that popular? There's no way to know. <laughs> there was no other box to check. Uh, and even if there were, everybody wouldn't be that stupid because that was a place where they killed you for looking wrong, let alone voting wrong. So, um, so the, the lender has to know, the lender has to approve, and both of those criteria are, are failed, uh, you know, not true today. And then there are two on the borrower side. And on the borrower side, the borrower has to have, uh, first of all, the intention to repay. And if you look at debates, so the borrower obviously being, you know, the 800-pound gorilla borrower in the room uh, being the U.S. government, the government can't even stop increasing its debt, let alone um, make any credible show or pre any credible pretense, pretense even of intending to repay. Um, and then finally, the borrower has to have the means to repay. What that means is you have an income that matches against the um, amortization schedule of the debt. And um, certainly in commercial debt, that means you're borrowing to finance a productive asset. You know, if you borrow to buy a house and the house rents for $1,000 a month and your mortgage is $800 a month, you have $1,000 a month income against $800 a month uh, expense. And so you have the means to repay. But if you borrow in order to go on a, um, a gambling binge to Las Vegas, then the asset is gone. There is no asset anymore, and there is no income that was created. You just simply have a liability 
uh, you don't have the means to repay it. Now, you may have some spare income out of your salary that's going to go towards that to many years repaying it. Pretty unpleasant, and most people don't have that discipline. Certainly, the government doesn't. So those are the four criteria. The borrower, I'm sorry, the lender is knowing and willing. The borrower has means and intent. And in the case of the government borrowing, whether it's directly from the Fed or, or uh, directly from buyers of its bonds, all four of those, well, certainly th- through the Fed, anyway, all four of those uh, criteria fail. That's why I call it counterfeit credit. We talked about this counterfeit credit and why we're all forced to use it a little bit in the, in the last episode. Do you want to just reiterate that? Uh, well, they've passed the legal tender law that says any creditor is obliged to accept tender, which is payment of the debt in Federal Reserve credits. And it's not that it's, you know, I mean, two parties can agree on whatever they want, but, you know, normally if you owe money, if you owe money and the creditor takes you to court, the court's going to say, well, the, uh, the debtor has tendered this uh, in payment and you're not going to get anything else, take it or leave it. Right. So we literally have no choice in the matter, even if we understand, like you said, this is a rigged uh, the the creditor is uh, unwilling <laughs> uh, to extend the credit, and the borrower neither has the means nor intent to repay. There's because of government fiat, we're forced into this system. Just to underscore that, you have the right to buy gold today, and a lot of people do, obviously. But with gold comes the price risk. So you know, to get out of the frying pan, you get into the fire in a way. And for people who cannot take the price risk, then they're, then they're trapped in the dollar. You know, most people don't want to take price risk. Right. They don't understand the, the forces that drive the price of gold up or down. And so they'd rather just not take that risk. So by divorcing the dollar from gold, it makes gold, you know, significantly less attractive. But what's hidden, perhaps, is the risk that they're taking in holding dollars, as opposed to the risk, the price risk of gold. And that's, a, that's hard to weigh. Of course. So, we again, we talked a little bit last time about how the Fed borrows money, you know, the, the printing narrative. I, I want to get to kind of part two of this money printing story, which is fractional reserve banking that, that occurs at the commercial bank level. So in, in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, we see the, the run on George Bailey's bank. He has a crowd of customers in there demanding their deposits back. And, and of course, George is, is there saying, now, now, wait a minute, Bob, your money's in Bill's house. And Bill, your money's in Larry's house, you know, and <laughs> and and trying to you know convince them that they just need to hold out for the banks to reopen that you know old man Potter down the street is offering fifty cents on the dollar for for Georgia's shares anyway it's it's a it's a well known scene as I understand it these bank runs were used in part to justify the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 which enabled banks you know a more elastic capital supply via the Fed the Federal Reserve system and thus prevent these situations. And so when I go to Investopedia, I've referred to this source a few times on our show because it it generally is the first source that pops up on Google when you search for any major financial topic. You know, here's what it says under under the fractional reserve multiplier effect, right? Fractional reserve, quote unquote, refers to fraction of deposits held in reserve. For example, if a bank has 500 million in assets, it must hold 50 million or 10% in reserve. Now I want to note real quick as of March of last year, these requirements were slashed to zero. So, so as I understand it, Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, there is no current reserve requirement on commercial banks. So yeah, so the money supply goes to infinity. Just kidding. 
Okay. Just kidding. So, just kidding. So just part, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so part two uh, of this um, multiplier effect description. Analysts reference an equation referred to as the multiplier equation when estimating the impact of the reserve requirement on the, on the economy as a whole. The equation provides an estimate for the amount of money created with the fractional reserve system and is calculated by multiplying the initial deposit by one divided by the reserve requirement. Using the example above, the calculation of 500 million multiplied by one divided by 10% or 5 billion. So essentially, if I understand it right, 500 million in deposits leads to $5 billion potentially as a ceiling in circulated currency uh, via the um, lending practices of these banks. So with this description, I think we see a lot of infomercials sort of demonstrating this exponential growth of the money supply and ultimately contributing to a, an inflationary environment and, and ultimately a, a ending in a hyperinflation. So Keith, help break this down for us. Are these just like, you know, we sort of debunked that the Fed was not actually printing but borrowing. What is going on here at the commercial bank level in terms of, of these fractional reserves? There's so many so many things to unpack there, so I'm going to try to do my best and have a brief comment. Uh, the first is that you said is, is, you had an interesting way of framing. You said that's a ceiling on the amount of money that can be created. Typically, it's taken as that's the amount of money that's created. So if you have a 10% reserve requirement, you know, the system will multiply the base money times 10. If you have a 5% reserve requirement, the system will multiply the base money by 20. And that's obviously false because now that we have a reserve requirement of zero, we don't have infinity as a money supply. And so um, ceiling is probably a better concept versus just absolute multiplier. Now, as soon as you say ceiling, doesn't that raise a question that's now hanging, hanging, I think of it as questions that are hanging in the air, screaming out, demanding to be answered. Okay, if it's a ceiling, then is there any other force? Is there any other rule? Is there any other constraint that limits the creation of, of this so-called money below whatever the reserve requirement would be? And the obvious answer is yes, which is there is something today that is holding the money supply to be less than infinity, right? Um, and what is it? And so what these alarmists do, and the, and the reason why they lose all credibility with the mainstream, that is with anybody who's really studied banking and the Federal Reserve, look down upon the, the gold bugs that, that come across this with this alarmism, is that they're taking for granted something you cannot take for granted. And that is, there is a whole process involving countless different people that all have to play along in order to get that maximum expansion, right? So I deposit $100 in the bank. Okay, fine. The bank doesn't lend 1000 The bank lends 90 under a 10% reserve requirement. Now, what everybody's taking for granted is that, well, I deposit 100 the bank lends 90 the borrower, let's say you're the borrower, you borrow $90 to do what? Well, I don't know, to, to buy something. The seller of whatever it is you bought could choose to deposit it you know, back in the bank, and then that, the bank would then have the, ra- the, the right to lend 81 out of that 90. You know, and, and then you know, that, that borrower you know, spends it, and that uh, merchant or whoever deposits it, and then the bank lends 72. And so if you add up the series you know, 90 plus 81 plus 72 dot, 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 you, know, you end up with um, a thousand. And that's that, that's that um, you know, money multiplier equation that you're talking about. But that, that presumes that every step along the way, 
every bank that's got the deposit and every borrower that wants to borrow and every recipient of that borrowed spending deposits it. That there's you know there's three parties involved in every iterate step of that iteration, and that iteration has to be iterated countless times. And if any of those parties choose not to do that for whatever reason, then the chain ends. And that's why number one, you can't just you can't I, I call it teleporting. You can't just go from oh well that would allow the bank to lend ten times. Therefore, if I deposit $100, the bank is lending 1000 That's an invalid uh, way to frame it because it, it just takes for granted all these decisions of all these economic actors. Um, so that's the, first, that's the first issue with that. Let's, let's look at now a very primitive gold standard system where there's literally no banks. The economy hasn't evolved yet to the point of having banks. So lending is completely private. Now, the bank is the market maker in lending. The bank is the one who makes it efficient that everybody with any bit of savings, no matter how small and no matter how unsophisticated they are, can deposit at the bank. And every entrepreneur who qualifies can get it. So the bank narrows the spread between lender and borrower. And if there are no banks, then the spread is going to be wide. Most people will not be lenders. Most people will be hoarding their gold, which historically is exactly what happened. But, you know, sophisticated parties who happen to know entrepreneurs may end up lending Notice that the same multiplier occurs even without banks at all. Suppose I have 100 gold coins and I'm not depositing them in a bank now. I'm just simply lending them to some young entrepreneur who spends those 100 coins to you know, hire carpenters to build a workshop for himself. And then he buys some equipment and tools and he hires some people and he buys some raw materials and he spends the, the 100 coins and those coins disperse out into the population, obviously. But let's say some of those folks, let's say the contractor who builds the, the workshop building, you know, gets you know, the, the lion's share of those coins. That workshop builder could then choose to lend some of those coins as well. And so you can still get a credit expansion uh, of more total ounces of gold and credit than there is total quantity of gold coins in circulation because I lend the gold coins to somebody who spends it the recipient of that spending lends it again the recipient of that spending lends it again and so you could end up with you know obviously it'll be lower it's much less efficient there's so much friction in the system it's not going to go to anywhere near its theoretical maximum um, you know capability you know it, you'll still get an expansion and so this, this really brings home the point that today, almost everybody suffers from a confusion between money and credit. So in the gold coin example, without banks, it's pretty clear what the difference is between a gold coin and a piece of paper signed by John Flaherty says, I promise to pay you a gold coin. The difference between those two is stark. It's night and day. So what you can expand is, of course, not a quantity of money. The quantity of gold coins is not expanding as, as a result of this process. The only way for that to expand is gold mining. But what can expand is gold redeemable credit. There's no particular limit to the ratio of gold credit divided by gold coins. Today, that distinction is all but obliterated, first of all, by our rotten education system, but by the fact that there is no money in the monetary system and everyone is struggling to try to figure out What's the definition of money and what's the definition of the money supply? And there are ongoing arguments for decades 
about what's the right definition of the money supply. Is it M0? Is it M1? Is it money of zero maturity, MZM? Is it Austrian money supply, AMS? Is it true money supply, TMS? All of these debates underscore that nobody can really define what money is. And the reason is they're, they're struggling to draw a line based on not on a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. What's the difference between the dollar bill and the 30-year treasury bond? It's duration and interest rate. Fundamentally, the same, they're the same animal. It's just one's a bigger, older animal than the other. And if you're trying to draw the line between animal and vegetable, and there are no vegetables in the universe, and it's, it's pretty hard to draw that line. Uh, and so anyways, uh, that confusion a- added on top of the idea of money printing. Uh, and then, of course, the other one being inflation. So it's taken practically as an article of faith that if you increase the quantity of what is called money, which I've now just argued is credit, then that means that um, consumer prices will inevitably follow by some proportion. And so uh, they feel that all this lending you know, dilutes the purchasing power of the currency. And so you get a, a lot of people that are pretty angry about the whole, about the whole process. So let me just restate to make sure I understand. In a gold standard, you would still get this expansion of credit commensurate with the demand for that credit. The, the main difference, though, is that at the end of the day, there is something real, i.e. money, that stands ready to extinguish that credit when it is satisfied. Do I have that right? That's right. I mean, if there's no demand for credit, it's not going to expand. Also, supply. So in, in lending, there is a distinct asymmetry between the guy who has the gold coin and the guy who wants the gold coin. The guy who has the gold coin is in charge of the negotiations because he has many alternatives. The guy who needs the gold coin does not. Uh, so both parties have to have to agree to it, but have to be willing to do it. And, uh, and you're right, when, when you have a debt and then you pay the gold coin, the debt is extinguished. Uh, a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. In the dollar system, if you owe a dollar and you pay a dollar, the the debt is not extinguished, it's merely shifted to another balance sheet. Right, so you had brought up the inflation topic, again, might be another topic for another day, but in brief, what then does cause inflation in a fiat money system if it's not the expansion of the money supply or the credit supply? In very brief, rising interest rates and increases in mandatory useless ingredients. So everybody understands that um, it costs money to add ethanol to gasoline. And um, when they first do that, and then everyone sees that that adds 20 cents or 25 cents a gallon or whatever that is, everyone is screaming mad at the environmental regulators for that, as they should be. But then six months later, that's all forgotten. And people look at the consumer price index and they say, cost of fuel has gone up. It's inflation. It's the Fed. It's the quantity of money. And meanwhile, it's mandatory useless ingredients, which are things that the consumer doesn't value and may not even know is even, I mean, ethanol, everyone knows is in the gas or MBTE. There's a lot, in most cases, the useless ingredients, the consumers don't even know what's in there and they don't care. And they assume that the price rise due to the mand- mandate of the useless ingredient is a monetary inflation because Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And so based on that axiom, then every time the, the regulators come along and mandate something new and that drives prices up, well, that's inflation. Gotcha. So does it have anything to do at all with velocity? That's another one that you hear 
quite a bit in the mainstream. And, and, you know, uh, the supply of the money is only half the equation. The velocity is sort of the other half. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I was a science major originally in, in school. I can distinctly recall, particularly in chemistry lab, sometimes in physics lab, you know, you knew what, you know, you added, you know, this many grams of, of this to this many grams of that, and you, you know, put it under heat and solution and you knew how many grams of whatever, you know, aspirin or whatever it was you're synthesizing that you're supposed to get. You know, usually, especially with, with undergraduates in a relatively primitive lab, you know, the, the amount of output you got was way off from what you calculated it was supposed to be. And um, so we always used to joke about the fudge factor. And that is, you know, this sort of force that, um, you know, caused the, the, the result to be wrong. And, and uh, that's why, you know, the answer is supposed to be one, but it came out 17.3. And um, velocity kind of strikes me as that everyone assumes that, well, if you double the money supply, you should double the price level generally. Yes, there are leads and lags. And yes, there's, you know, maybe a proportionality, you know, it hits this part of the economy first before going to that part later, whatever. But there should be this doubling. And then when it doesn't happen, everyone says, well, you see what had happened was velocity went down. Well, yeah, that's the fudge factor that makes your equation work. No different than the chemistry lab when, you know, it's supposed to be this many moles of this, this many moles of that equals this, and then when it doesn't work, then you have to put a fudge factor in your, in your math. Well, plus, you know, whatever, 16.3 in my example, and then that's what makes it work. And uh, the same thing with velocity. It's not a actual real thing. It's just a term to make the equation balance. Got it. Well, We'll promise our listeners here and now to uh, to dive deeper into this inflation mystery and, like you said, why it hasn't materialized when all the predictions have uh, promised it would. Well, that's all the time we have today. Keith, thanks again for your insights. Thank you for joining us on The Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.